Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app. Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today's Tuesday, January 25th. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today is my good friend Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. We're only a few feet apart here. We are both in Kansas City. I was at the game last night. I was thinking, you know what? I might as well stick around. We're recording on Monday anyway. You live 10 minutes from where my hotel was, and we never get a chance to do this. Yeah, this is fun. I was a little bit surprised. I didn't know you still traveled for games. So. Hey, you know, sometimes I like to. I, when that game happened, I was like, I'm circling this. We're going. It was funny last night. So I'm in the press box, and I got to my seat a little bit late just because I was watching the end of Rams Bucks. It was still going on as the game was about to start. And you're in the, the box and it's hard. You don't necessarily understand everything that's happening pregame. There are a lot of rituals and you can't hear everything because the box is closed. And in KC, they have a pregame ritual where they have someone bang a large drum. And I saw someone swinging the mallet or drumstick, whatever you were going to call it, to bang the drum. And he was wearing a 71 jersey. He's like, oh, that's interesting. The guy's wearing a Mitchell Schwartz jersey who's banging that drum. And then I realized later that night that it was you. Yeah, that was me. Uh, <laughs> so there are actually two drum bangings. I did the one in the third quarter. So the one. Oh, that was it. Maybe that, yeah. that was it. So, yeah, yeah. so the one before the game was Neil Smith, a former defense lineman who played for the Chiefs for a while. And apparently, I, I didn't see it because we had just got there, but apparently he went nuts and banging the crap out of the drum the stadium was going nuts like the best hype man ever and so they were like all right well you got to follow that good luck and i think he broke the thing you banged the drum with and so they only had like one more drum banging utensil what, what would you call that the drum banging utensils good. I, i've been trying to think of that because i've been describing this to people today and i haven't been able to figure out what to call it drum banging thing and the other one was basically broken in half i think someone else had broken it earlier in the year and this was now the backup and so they gave it to me they're like hey just so you know this is broken um if it's gonna start like splintering or you feel it you know falling apart just stop banging the drum and we'll just continue cheering and it'll be fine and so i was figuring out the exact way to like hold it and then i also figured out the right angle to hit it because if i hit it basically 180 degrees opposite it would keep fracturing and so i tried to do it but as i was banging this is the it, most mitchell schwartz angle-based bullshit in the history of the world yeah this is sure. how you think that this is how you thought about playing football this is that people should understand that yeah and so i didn't want to get impaled and they were like if it starts falling off like just let us know and stop and i'm thinking like yeah they don't want me to like fling it behind me and the drums at the very top of the stadium and this <laughs> sawed off drum or stick falls three stories and impale somebody. So I was going to do everything I needed. So my drum banging was a little bit pared down because I couldn't go full bore. I had to protect myself. And I'm others. sure you did a great job. Everyone seemed to enjoy the drum banging. It's okay. You don't have to be self-conscious about it. You don't have to defend your drum banging to everyone. I saw a clip or two and it didn't look like the smoothest form. So I feel a little self self-conscious about it. 
So we're just going to dig into mailbag questions today. I appreciate everyone who sent them in. It was such a wild weekend that even a day later, it was hard for me to know what to dig into. And I figured we would take the lead from the people and take some questions and see what people wanted to hear about. Again, you guys came through the way that you always do. It's always sincerely appreciated. I wanted to start with an email that we got that wasn't really a question. It was from Don Crehan. I just thought it was the purest thing and such a great way to think about what happened this weekend. He said, guys, in 1958, I saw the game, the NFL championship, Colts-Giants. I was 11 and was wondering what the hell a first down was, but the intensity was unmistakable and unforgettable. Now I'm 74 and just saw it again. It was the weekend. No one knew we had just seen the game until years later, looking back on it. We may well come to look back on these four games as the weekend. The weekend we lost Brady, Rodgers, or both. The weekend the torch was passed to a new generation of quarterbacks. The weekend Allen and Mahomes both grew even past their previous own peaks. The weekend Stafford and Cup put a stake in the heart of Brady's last comeback. The weekend the, ju- the Rams justified their all-in moves. The weekend Shanahan closed in on his dad. The weekend Cincinnati won a second playoff game despite taking nine sacks. The weekend of four walk-off field goals or touchdowns. You may well live a long life, but you'll not see the likes of this again. I thought that was, again, the purest way to describe what just happened and good perspective because I want to just bask in this for at least 24 more hours about how incredible and rare and special it was to go through and watch all of those games this weekend. Yeah, we have the time to do it. This is a week that we only have two games coming up. Exactly. And they're big games, but we saw the Chiefs and the Bengals play a few weeks ago, so it's not necessarily the most fresh matchup. We we can kind of rehash it. And then we've got the third matchup of week 18. Yeah, yeah, the Rams and the 49ers. So this is a perfect week to reflect on these four perfect football games. And last week we were talking about "Eh, is the six games maybe too much and all these non competitive (laughs) games. And then, of course, the NFL delivers. They come back with their best weekend. You know, I can't wait to see the Raiders on what that Chiefs Bills game ended up but just spectacular football from from all parts the emailer kind of hit it over the head when you look at each individual game there was a major storyline or two and then you look at the all four games combined ending on the last play three road wins in the divisional weekend um, really just a spectacular week of football so we dug into so much of what happened last night when I talked to Nate after the game but it's easy to miss stuff and there's so many things that happened near the end we didn't talk a lot about the Chiefs side of that last drive. And looking at what Pat and Travis Kelsey said afterward about how they saw what happened after the timeout with 13 seconds left, or the last play with eight seconds left. They saw what happened after the timeout, the way the defense was aligned. And Travis essentially told Patrick, if they do that again, screw what we had called. I'm doing this exact thing. I want you to just walk me through what it was like to watch that moment as somebody who cares about this team, who knows those guys, who really cares about the way they're talked about and seen and their overall legacy and things of that nature. Just talk me through what that final drive was like as someone emotionally invested in everything about the Chiefs and what they do. Well, it goes without saying it was you know, beyond special and cool to see. And I like that they were able to describe that and that people are starting to realize how special what they do on the field is and i've tried to explain it and we've talked about it in the past and it's like they just see the game the same and they communicate it to themselves in this special way sometimes it's verbal sometimes it's not sometimes it's during the cadence you know we trav said that and then we've got the audio today of pat saying hey trav just do it just do it 
and i haven't seen that that's amazing yeah so, oh my god i have to see i have to watch that i haven't seen that yet yeah so pat's pat's doing his cadence it's almost like i mean there's been other cool ones the one that sticks out cadence wise is when brady is like gronk stand up and gronk just like stands up out of a stance i don't remember if it was stand up or get down but i remember brady barking at gronk during a cadence either stand up or, or go down and yeah trav gets there he kind of shuffles in from his original spot and pat's like trav do it do it do it why did why he said hut and gets the ball and snaps it and i weirdly in the moment i was tweeting as, as i was watching and i couldn't believe that buffalo was taking timeouts in that spot i just don't understand i get that you want to see the formation but these end of game they plays, can change it they can change the formation well that too and these end of game plays are relatively static and you scout them and yeah we ran the tyreek play uh the the play before where he gets the ball there's some blockers for him we ran that in 2017 the end of the first half against dallas and he scored the touchdown well they weren't necessarily prepared for that so yeah they probably have that somewhere in their database that end of game situation this might happen but they weren't prepared for it so i don't know what they're really looking for in terms of calling a timeout but in the moment i was thinking this would actually be a great scenario for a double move because the Chiefs were at, what, like the minus 45 or minus 40 or something. They needed probably 10, 15 yards to get in the fringe field goal range. And I figured Buffalo is going to put a huge emphasis on that 20-yard uh, patch of grass, primarily from midfield to about the 40, maybe 38-yard line. And they basically just played soft coverage to that spot and had two safeties super deep. Now, obviously, that's a reaction to just getting burned by Tyreek the drive before and the speed and all that. But I was thinking in my head, okay, well, they're going to, play probably this 25 yard area what if the chiefs had an awesome double move a deep you know 18 yard come back and go or something of that nature they probably would have had the opportunity to score and then buffalo takes the field they're super soft they call timeout they stay in the same exact defense gives the chiefs a chance to see and adjust and again it's those two guys seeing in the moment and just you don't want to say overcome coaching because the call was probably right but coach reed always talks about putting your personality on it and letting your personality shine like those two guys saw something they understood the situation they knew what could be done and even trav with the situational awareness he goes down he pops up he's calling time out immediately it's just uh, a really cool moment and i'm glad that people are starting to see how special their individual connection is you tweeted about this last night just that in that situation we've discussed this last week how end of scenarios go and how you practice them Walk me through for the Chiefs specifically what that segment looks like. Who are the voices? Who's kind of handles the organizational aspects of it? Who takes the lead for you guys in those situations when you practice them? So typically it's the offensive coordinator. So currently it's EB, uh, Eric Bianami. And so I think Friday mornings is the first time he goes over those end of game situations. Uh, Friday's practice, the very first like kind of team uh, offensive period where you're just going on air going against like the coaches and backups and stuff on scout team um, you go through a few of those end of game situations and then uh, Saturday you kind of hit them again in the morning both meeting and then on the field for the walkthrough or mock game or whatever you call it um, you run a few end of game situations in that one so you get like a half speed one on Friday when you do it against air and maybe against a, a scout team that's out there. But again, the scout team's like your own offense. So it's just guys lining <laughs> up to, to be lined up. And then Saturday it's super pared down. It's literally a walkthrough. Now you're going against your own defense. And so there's a little bit of like, they're doing their end of game scenarios. You're doing your end, end of game start scenarios. So it's not like competitive per se, but there is a c certain play that teams usually have like one play that they'll run for the absolute end of game scenario. And, the defense doesn't want to give that touchdown. The offense wants to 
score. So it, it can get a little bit competitive That's in a weird funny. way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's cool. It's fun. Um, again, we talked about this, like someone brought up the chiefs didn't have this scenario the entire season, but yeah. you have to be ready for it because in that situation it's win or, or go home. Like if you lose the game's over, your season's over. So being prepared for that, it's, boring it gets annoying to hear the same yeah on this play we're gonna do this and this is your landmark and get the ball out and with eight seconds left do this and but it's what you got to do and you know eb does a really good job with that speaking of boring i i'm I'm guilty of it as anybody you watch what the chiefs did last night and there for me there's an attractiveness to the newness like if buffalo had won and maybe they're going to win their first super bowl and this is the moment for josh allen instead the chiefs win that game and i think it's so so easy to take this team and the future hall of fame players on this team for granted at this point of their trajectory right like we know what pat is we know that travis kelsey is the greatest pass catching tight end of all time we know what tyree kill is but those moments for them to do that and understand exactly how to bend the rules to their will when the season on the line even the final touchdown the final touchdown is so beautiful where travis runs that double move it's a little out and up near the pylon and to be able to do that and just sell that so subtly in that moment and then catch a back shoulder ball so easily and smoothly for a touchdown that sends you to the AFC championship game, you just expect it at this point. And I honestly have to just drill it into my own head when that stuff happens. Like, Don't take this for granted. Like, Don't just let this wash over you and think, well, it's the Chiefs. Of course they did this. Because that just spectacular knack for those sorts of things is so rare that I feel like I have to like take a step back and make myself appreciate it more often than I do. We definitely need to. He pats what twenty five or twenty six, and yeah, I think undoubtedly has the best resume of any quarterback to this point in his career. I mean, he started four years and he's hosted four AFC Championship games. Insane. He's gone to three or two Super Bowls out of the three eligible years. We'll see what happens this weekend. It's just it's unprecedented. It's absolutely unprecedented, and of course we lost sight of that during the year. I think kind of what I was saying at the time and also looking at it now, he has such mastery of everything around him that I think when he goes through those lulls, I mean, that is the first quote unquote lull he's had in his career, but like he's built up enough equity and what he does is so crazy that you have to believe that there's other stuff going on. And yeah, maybe he took those chances because he knew the defense was giving up a bunch of points and they needed a touchdown and on third and 12, it didn't really matter if they punted. Maybe he wanted to make an incredible play and, he was fine with interception because it was going to be seven for the other team anyway. So he does all these calculations in his head. He's, as we've seen, a brilliant mind on the field, uh, off the field. And I do hope that we're not losing the appreciation of it because it's incredibly special. And Kelsey, he was, to my eye, exhausted in the two-minute drill. You know, we talked last week again about what guys are being taught. I know after he catches a pass, what he's supposed to do. Um the first two minute drive like he was too tired to go do the right thing and then he like literally walked across the field to the opposite side to line up a tight end because he was so tired that like he wasn't really able he was just conserving energy to get to the next play and they scored that drive and they scored the next one and then they score an overtime and i know we're going to talk about overtime rules at some point i'm sure we are um but like those guys were exhausted so yeah to do that double move and to catch it so effort- effortlessly when you had this 
mentally stressful game, emotionally stressful game, physically taxing for sure. And to just make it look like it's the easiest thing in the world, it's it's pretty incredible. And, you know, they're going to have some awesome highlights. And I was part of some of them and I won't be part of a lot of them because they're going to they're going to make a lot more. So I want to get to you know, just the appreciation for Mahomes and what he is and what Alan was last night. And we touched on this a little bit during the show I did with Nate. But Will Casey sent us an email that I feel like we can expand on a little bit further. He said, as a Browns fan, I look at the AFC and I see Mahomes, Allen, Herbert, Burrow, and Lamar. I feel if you don't have an elite quarterback, then you're just not going to win anything for the next blank years, however many years. And he went on to talk about some options that Cleveland might have. But I want to sit in this idea for a second. Because I remember thinking it early in the year, watching what Justin Herbert looked like in year two and understanding what Allen and Mahomes were the year before and Rodgers and Brady and understanding that and seeing how different it feels when you have one of the guys and when you don't. And at times that ebbs and flows during the season. You know, we've seen offenses like San Francisco where they can be really effective even with Jimmy Garoppolo. We've seen other examples of it over time. You know, Mac Jones had some moments this year as the Patriots quarterback. But you come to that moment last night and you watch what that weekend felt like. And I know the Niners won, but they almost didn't win. Without the defense, they don't win that game. And Jimmy did not play well. And then you see the game that Ryan Tannehill had. And you can do it. You can do it for four games even, maybe. You can win a Super Bowl one time, maybe. But when the playoffs come, the game is so hard. And so many things need to go your way. And when your quarterback is just a cog in that machine and he's just one more thing that needs to go right and he's not erasing mistakes, you're going to see it. And that to me is the takeaway from what this weekend was, what this Final Four looks like, everything. Unless you go get one of those guys. And I think the Rams are a perfect example of this, right? McVay is one of those people that you think, oh, we'll plug a guy in and it'll work because it did until it doesn't. And they knew they needed to go get an upgrade in order to compete with these teams. They played the Bills last year. They played the Chiefs before. Shanahan played the Bills last year. They played the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. They went to get Trey Lance. No machine can overcome a quarterback's shortcomings when the game gets hard at this point in the season. And I don't understand how you can watch that game last night as one of these teams facing a quarterback dilemma or without one and think, we can make our guy work. We're going to be the exception here. Yeah, it's extremely tough to do that. And looking at Cleveland specifically, they are an example of a pretty awesome infrastructure around them in terms of a good offensive mind, an excellent offensive line, got some playmakers, turned out they shipped their best guy off and that didn't work for whatever reason. (laughs) Defensively, they probably didn't have the success they wanted, but in terms of talent and guys on that roster, they've got a pretty good uh, ability to get to the quarterback and to do some good things on defense. And so you look at a team like that and you say, okay, maybe this is a team that can overcome it. Well, we've seen for two straight years, they haven't been able to. Clearly, they need an upgraded quarterback to get to this type of level. And it's just, it's so much more difficult to win in that way, to not have these guys, as you say, that can erase mistakes, that can overcome these other things. And I think that's what, you know, don't want to make this into people who look at advanced data and people who don't, but the guys who are watching film and just seeing things happen, like who gives a fuck that Jimmy has the third highest EPA since 2017? Like you can't watch football this weekend and come away thinking, Oh yeah, that's one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Like you just, you can't do that. And so you see what Allen does, you see what Mahomes does and they've done it in high leverage situations. They've done it over and over now, Allen for two years, Mahomes for four years. And just like, yeah, there's something to these guys. And 
these are the guys that it's kind of become in the NBA. You need one of the top seven guys to get to the championship and to compete. And we're realizing in the NFL, like, yeah, that's what you need to do. And as you said, two of the top minds in McVeigh and Shanahan who have been able to plug in guys who are less talented and less able and get to the Super Bowl and almost win, they both independently or together, I mean, probably independently came to the conclusion like, hey, this guy's not good enough for us to be consistently in the spot that we want to be and to be you know, the best team in the NFL every single year. So they made it their mission to upgrade that position and to get a guy who they believe is a top five guy. I know <laughs> that's a different debate on Stafford, but he has top five talent. What what he can do expands your offense enough to give you more answers on the field. Like the yeah. fact that you can get to some of those backside things, the fact that just the overall aggressiveness of the offense changes. I think the scope of what you can do changes enough with Matthew Stafford that he falls in the category that we're talking about and isn't an also ran plug and play quarterback. Right. Because as we've heard, the Patriots, apparently that was the most confident they've ever been going into a Super Bowl, just being like, yeah, we have the answer. We, we know how yeah. to defeat Goff. This is going to be an easy game. Now, offensively, they had to turn it on in 22 personnel in the fourth quarter and start <laughs> chucking bombs to Gronk. But yeah, they held the Rams to three points and it was pretty easy because the Rams offense was pretty one dimensional. And so, as you're saying, Stafford may or may not be a top five guy as of two games into the playoffs. He sure seems like he's in the top five category for right now. But yeah, he unlocks this other element of offense, and that's what all these guys want is, again, we get back to balance, and it's not 50-50 run pass. It's being able to run the ball, play action, throw short, throw deep, throw a screen, do whatever in any situation at any time, and that's what these top quarterbacks do. And I know that it's easy to say this. You need one of these seven, eight guys, whatever the final number ends up being. There are only seven or eight of them. So what do you do? If you're one of these teams that doesn't have one, how does your thinking need to change? And I think that's the thing we really need to look at moving forward and kind of project moving forward. It's how quickly you move on when you know you don't have one. What avenues can you pursue to try to go find one? How often should you draft a quarterback in the first round? How much should you commit to this quarterback? Can you pay him a certain amount and still win with him? What's that number? These are all the questions that we're going to have to ask, but I still feel like the league overall hasn't drifted far enough to the side of, we got to move on. We got to change this out. The Rams realized it two years later than they should have. Some of these other teams have realized it later than they should have. So I feel like that's the mindset that has to change. If we don't have one of these guys, we have to constantly be figuring out how to find one. And sometimes that just means moving on from someone, moving on from a guy you drafted number one overall when his contract expires. That's hard to do because when you've seen your team be competent, when you've seen your team be a playoff team and win some games, it's so, so easy to convince yourself this can work. We can win with him. Let's not wade into the unknown because that's scary. I just don't think that line of thinking and that way of operating can dictate the decision making in the NFL anymore. When you watch guys like that were on the field last night. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because you know Mahomes isn't leaving Kansas City. Allen isn't leaving Buffalo. Herbert's staying. Burrow's staying. So you look at these guys and you're to get an established star quarterback for the most part it's going to have to be a guy in his mid to late 30s or Brady in his 40s who is disgruntled wants to move on okay we caught the last two years of Brady or however much longer he plays we're going to catch the last two or three years of Rodgers Wilson's a little bit different he's in his earlier maybe he's 33 or something um so you're looking at still in his 30s and injury for the first time this past year and declined play for the last season and a half but 
how else are you going to find these guys? Because we talked about trading for Carr a bunch, and yeah, he's a number eight to twelve quarterback, eight to twelve quarterback, but he's not one of these guys. And so you're trading for him, and now you're saying, okay, well, he's a pretty good quarterback, but is he going to be one of these top, for sure top five guys? And that's a tough situation. This year's draft, when we talk about this year's draft, not having the stud guys. I mean, we just don't know. It seems like there's not going to have an Allen or Mahomes or whatever. We don't know, and so it's tough as a GM to move on from this okay thing that you know is going to have a decent amount of success to go to this unknown or to you know quote unquote mortgage the future for a Rodgers who you have no idea what he's going to think week to week even let alone is he going to be here for more than a year or two and I know there's been some Eli and Rodgers stuff on the internet from what people have put out I actually had a different thought and I was thinking about this kind of independently I think you take Rodgers career over Eli's every time because the greatness of, of Rodgers is that your team always wins 12, 13, 14 games. You get to the playoffs every year. That's the more sustainable thing. It's Peyton Manning. It's Aaron Rodgers. It's these guys who win the division every year. They get to the playoffs, you know, 33% of the time they have a bye. It's, number's going to change a little bit now with the new bye rules. But they're always in the top of their division. They're always looking for uh, chances to get to the Super Bowl. Or you've got the Eli thing, which is... They had two incredible runs. They won two Super Bowls, but for the most part, they weren't as successful as some of these other teams. And I think you take the top five quarterback who's going to win 12 games a year and roll the dice on what happens in the playoffs. And we know that can be variable. And yeah, to your point, teams, (laughs) that's the strategy. That's the best way to ensure long-term success. I don't know how feasible it is every time to go to your boss and say, hey, the first rounder, he's not good enough. And then two years later, hey, that first rounder, he's not good enough. Hey, that first, like, no, you're not good enough anymore. You're out of here. If that's, you give that's these, 100%. That's right. Right. So if you gave these guys, hey, yeah, you'll be the jam for 10 years and you can screw up four times to find the right guy on the fifth time, like that's just not reality. And so that's why I think teams are reticent to move on because they know 10 and 7 and making the playoffs and having some projection for the future. And maybe if we can get a little better here, we can upgrade there. We can turn to 11 or 12 win team and a, you know, Super Bowl contender. That's the allure. For how long? That's the question. Yeah. It, that, that is, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to win one Super Bowl one time or are you trying to win 10 games a year every single year? And I think that's the question that teams have to sit back and ask themselves. It, it's not easy. It's not easy to think about. And beyond trying to go find one of the established guys, I think it's understanding and being willing to make the sort of move that the Bills and the Chiefs made. They both did the same thing. They had playoff teams. You know, the Bills was obviously a weird situation. Yeah, but Tyrod Taylor was an acceptable quarterback and they made the moves necessary to trade up in the draft to get Josh Allen. The Chiefs had a playoff team. They were a very good offense with Alex Smith, and they said, we need to go get somebody that will raise our ceiling, and they traded up in the draft to go get one of those guys. Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen were not sure things. Justin Herbert was drafted sixth overall. A lot of teams could have potentially traded up into the top five if they really wanted to and gone and got Justin Herbert. He was the third quarterback taken in that draft. So is it is it worth it to make a gamble on someone with super high-level traits and try to figure out the rest later? I don't want to be a prisoner of the moment and let what happened last night make me automatically say yes. But I think if you look at where the league is headed and what the landscape of it looks like, it is worth it. It is worth it to just take a gamble and see if you can find one of those guys because it changes everything about what type of team you can be right and again it kind of gets down to what the gm wants whether he's in it to win super bowls or whether he's in it to 
put a good enough team on the f- field to preserve his job. It's a great point. Yeah, keep running. So there's gonna be different philosophies on job security and all those things there. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. You look at other sports and baseball in particular, and you say, okay, well, there's ownerships who are only willing to spend sixty million dollars when you're allowed to spend one hundred eighty million. So do you just not care about winning at, at all? Like now, this is kind of the GM version of it: is are you willing to? mortgage a few years and not like purposely tank or anything like that but make a risk it could pan out it could not pan out but trying to upgrade your quarterback to get one of these top five guys and i think it's something you should do and it's very easy for us to say that on the whole uh we're not sitting in that guy's you know apartment and there's i mean if he's the gm he's got better than an apartment <laughs> you we're not, hope so <laughs> we're not sitting in his mansion you know smoking a cigar and asking him how he's gonna keep the bills uh paid so yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation. I, I'm with you on the whole. I think the goal is to win the Super Bowl, number one. The best way to do that is to get the best quarterback that you can. The best quarterback also gives you year-to-year success and a certain floor to what your season is going to look like. And that's what you, sh- you should be chasing. There are going to be horrendous mistakes in this vein. People are going to look at the Josh Allen thing and there are going to be huge missteps about how you make it work so the thing is the people that are looking at it and that are going to make the missteps because of it we're probably going to make a misstep based on some other dumb thing anyway probably i i just think that even if it's not a misstep even if the calculation is correct where you you look at everything that's happened and you say we need one of those guys let's go get somebody with super high level traits we'll figure out the rest later there are going to be flame outs there are going to be guys that don't aren't as smart as josh allen aren't as dedicated to this as Josh Allen. Don't there so many different things go into this. It, both Patrick and Josh Allen have this combination of qualities and attributes beyond the physical that has allowed them to do this. Josh, Justin Herbert is the same way. There are going to be mistakes, but are those mistakes worth making? Is it okay to make that mistake if the mindset driving it is correct? I think that's the question you have to ask. I think we know the answer is yes. Again, it's just whether that GM is willing to take on that kind of risk. And for the most part, you're only able to fail on quarterback so much. And especially when you're moving on again from the number 14 quarterback chasing the number five quarterback and you've got a 10 win team. Say you're, you know, fringe 10 win team. And now you say, all right, we're going to blow it up to find this guy who's going to make us a 13 win team and a Super Bowl contender every year. And you fail. And now you're a five win team and it looks really bad. That's tough to stomach in real life, and that really is the issue. I don't like real life. I like talking about the stuff in a vacuum where I get to pretend that it doesn't actually have consequences. Hey, I'm with you too. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? Show up for a friend? Show up for yourself? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Showing up for yourself, that's a big one. That's exactly what therapy is. Doing what you need to do. Carving out the time that you need to make sure that you can show up for yourself and take care of what you need. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Maze today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Maze. 
All right, let's get to something that we have to talk about. All right, our first voicemail here. Hi, Mitch and Robert. This is Broncos fan Alaric calling in. Uh, very exciting game of weekends, of, uh, weekend of games, of course. Uh, going up to it, I was really excited telling all my friends, these are coin flip games. They're all 50-50 games, basically. Uh, you flip the coin, that's who wins. Well, we get to the Bills-Chiefs game and flip the coin in overtime to figure out who wins the game. And why are we okay with football games being decided by a coin flip? Uh, I, I think there are so many better ways to do this. And that's, that's my question for you is what is a better way of deciding who gets to start overtime? Uh, I was thinking there could be, you know, you could continue exactly where you left off in the fourth quarter. Uh, you could have a field goal competition to determine who gets the ball first. There's so many football ways to decide who gets to go first. I, I think we should just toss the coin flip and come up with something better. Thanks. You went on to suggest a couple things. I wanted to ask you this because I haven't talked to you about this and you always bring me back to earth with some of this stuff. Like this is why it's unrealistic. This is why it wouldn't work. So what is your thought about NFL overtime and how it could improve? Because when I come away from that game yesterday, it's just, it sucks to me that the second team doesn't get to touch the ball. I don't know what the best solution is, but I want to feel better about the outcome of arguably the greatest football game I've ever seen. It's the one thing that taints it in my mind. I know they have a ton of opportunities over the course of the entire game, but it just feels like there's a solution out there that gets closer to what we want that allows both teams to at least touch the ball at the end of the game. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think there is a good solution there's probably not a best solution or a perfect solution i get back and it's not the nfl caring about player safety or whatever but again those guys were exhausted the reason that we say oh they get the coin flip they're going to win is because for the most part the defenses are probably on their heels a little bit they're tired it's 10 and 1 by the way since the, the new overtime rules were established in the playoffs in the playoffs 10 and 1 in the regular season it's like 52 yes. percent. so you're looking at small sample size a little bit there now the playoffs have the better offenses and that rule favors the offense so you could say on the whole it's relatively equitable, but in the playoffs it's not, so we need to fix it. So if you say, okay, well, Buffalo gets the ball next, how many more drives do we think both teams would have scored touchdowns? Because now you're looking at a six, seven quarter game, theoretically, that both defenses are gassed. They can't pass rush anymore. Allen and Mahomes can sling it around. I don't love the idea of now you have to go for two point conversions. I think that's altering the structure of the game. And so you could look at a game like that and just say like okay they're just going to keep trading touchdowns well at some point like that's not fair that's physically just not okay to me uh to have that as a possible scenario realistically are they going to play six quarters you know who knows probably not but i don't think that there's a solution that that should be on the table um so that's my thing with yeah let's just let both teams get a chance at it and score touchdowns because it's 10 and 1 because that team goes down and scores a touchdown the majority of the time and the majority of the time, they're really close games at the end. And I think both teams, whoever gets the ball, is going to go and score. So um, I don't necessarily love just that aspect of both teams get the ball no matter what. And then we play. I know there's some good things and some kind of game theory ones where you choose to get the ball, but you got to spot it at a certain point or they get to spot it for you if you choose the ball. And oh, Some of the proposals have yeah. brought that forward that teams have suggested. Yeah. So some of those are interesting. You know, everyone's kind of got their spin on it. There's some interesting ones floating around twitter and all this stuff and i think there's a better solution i don't think that this is 
a bad thing right now. I think people are thinking of it like it's the worst thing ever and whatever. Um, I just don't see it that way. Like I didn't leave the AFC championship game four years ago thinking like, man, we got screwed by the overtime rules. Again, as players, you take responsibility for what you didn't do correctly. And so the Bills are taking responsibility for allowing the Chiefs to get in the field goal range with 13 freaking seconds left. Yeah. That's what they're doing. They're like, we had this game won. We let it up. This is our fault. That AFC Championship game, we scored, I think, zero points in the first half. Like, it's our fault we didn't have more points and we didn't win the game cleanly. Like, it's that simple. I don't blame D Ford. I don't blame the rules. I don't blame anything else. Our offense sucked in the first half and we had to fight and claw our way back to even tie it. And so we could have done better. So I think from the player perspective, there's a lot of former players on there that, you know, tweet stuff and like the engagement and like the following. But how often do you really hear current players go off on it? You don't really hear that. Like I didn't, obviously guys are trying to, you know, say the right thing and everything, but there's enough people now who just speak their mind regardless. You don't really hear the current players and the guys who lose those games saying like, man, this rule sucks and we should have got the ball. It's like, no, we should have done these other things to not put ourselves in that situation. So that's always how I feel. I, I don't have strong opinions about it either way. It's the same thing as when you hear, when you see a call at the end of a game that goes the wrong way in the aggregate, that's going to come out in the wash. Like it, it, the game is comprised of a hundred moments. One moment, even if it occurred at the end of the game, did not determine the outcome of the game. So that I've always been that way, and I, that's kind of how I feel here. It's like I I don't get worked up over it because I even if there is a better solution out there, I'm not so dissatisfied with this one that I'm going to waste a lot of time and energy on it. Right, and I mean at the end of the day, we're playing a game, and you know it's going it, it to happen. Though, like it, that, I, I that shouldn't be what deters us from caring. No, about no, this. no. I know, I know. I'm not saying don't care. I'm not saying care less or whatever. But like, we're not talking about nuclear codes or all these things that have like real importance <laughs> on worldly things and whatever. Like, yeah, we're all fans, and it affects our mood, and we're pissed off when our team loses and stuff, and we feel slighted by the rules of the refs or whatever. But like. It's just, it's not that important in the grand scheme of things. And some things work out, some things don't. Like, because of some bad stuff, like, you got to live one of the greatest moments with the Cubs winning the World Series. Like, I got to live through the 50 years between Super Bowls with the Chiefs. Like, it was probably more special to do it on the 50th anniversary and the 60th year of the team and the 100th year of the NFL than it would have been to win the year before. And so sometimes these things just work themselves out. And, it just kind of, like you said, evens itself out in the end. All right, let's get to our next one here. Hey, Robert. Uh, devastated Bills fan here. One strategy prior to Sunday night that I was using to protect myself from disappointment was the idea that uh, Josh Allen appearing in a Super Bowl was just a matter of time. If you go back through some recent NFL history, you can only find a couple of examples, Philip Rivers, Michael Vick, of quarterbacks who are even as remotely as talented as Josh Allen, who never appeared in the Super Bowl. I'm curious if you would agree, admitting that the AFC is increasingly a difficult place to play, that Josh Allen and the Bills making a Super Bowl in our lifetimes is just a matter of time. Thanks. I, I want to talk about this because, and we got a couple other questions about, we talked about this in Bill, about the Bills broadly. We got another voicemail about looking at what Sean McDermott has done and the way the team has been built and just how much faith we should have moving forward. You know, so many teams go through this process of saying, 
we, you know, we were so close. And if this thing happens and this thing happens, we're right there. And it's you delude yourself a little bit. But with the Bills, it does feel true. It does feel like they're so set up to be really good year after year because they've done this in a smart way. They have the right coaching staff. They have the right infrastructure, all of that stuff. I just think we have to remember, like Philip Rivers is a great name to bring up. Philip Rivers isn't as talented as Josh Allen, but I think Philip Rivers is a really fucking good quarterback. We know. And <laughs> he, he never played in the Super Bowl. And it's really, and you, you watch that game like in 07, right? Or 06 when they lose to the Colts. And you think about that Chargers team and how good they seemed and how young Philip Rivers was at that point. I think it's dangerous to think this way. As tempting as it might be in the moment, I think Josh Allen will eventually get there. I think they will eventually one day break through. But Patrick Mahomes is 26 years old, right? There is no guarantee that this will happen. And that's why, in my opinion, the ending of that game last night is just so devastating because there's no guarantee that it's ever going to be this good again, even if it seems like they're going to be good for a while. I'm with you on that. There's no guarantee. I would say if you give Josh Allen 15 more seasons, he's going to have a few cracks in AFC Championship games and abilities to get to the Super Bowl. You just, I think he will play in one. I, I To answer the question directly, I think he yeah, will play I think, I think he will too. I mean, Brady has the best percentage of ever doing it, and there was still over half the time that he wasn't in it. And I think Pat is on a, as we talked about, insane trajectory. But I think even to say that he's going to play in 50% of the Super Bowls is probably pushing it. Like, that's just insane. There's only been one guy to ever be that close, and it just happened. So it could happen. I'd love to see it happen. But realistically over the next 15 years you say pat makes six of them that leaves nine others i would like to think Allen would make one or two of those i think this loss is particularly tough because last year seemed like okay we got further than maybe we expected to we got to the championship game it was close we know these few areas we need to address we dropped a couple pass rushers we upgraded a receiver we did these other little things the cap's in a good spot our oc stayed quarterback's still cheap yeah and uh it didn't work <laughs> and they lost in the worst fashion possible in terms of you know devastating heartbreak and it's tough and basically none of the moves really mattered because the pass rush was non-existent and you can say yeah they're still young and they're going to grow over time and stuff but like this whole year was about tooling yourself up to beat the chiefs and it didn't work and this was the worst chiefs year we've seen of the last four and it just didn't work and so i think it's going to be really difficult because I don't know that there's a minor tweak or a little adjustment. It does seem like Dayball is going to leave. And we talk about how important that guy is to not him specifically, but like the offensive coordinator, the guy who's designing plays, the guy who creates the offense for the quarterback. We talk about how important that is for a team. And that's why, as we've discussed a bunch, you'd love to have your coach be that offensive mind with the way things are going. And they don't have that. And so if Dayball leaves, maybe something bad happens to the offense. They don't get a guy quite as good. Now they're 90% of the offense. And that's just not enough to go up against these guys every single year in the AFC. Josh Allen today, it seemed like he was hinting at the fact that he would want Ken Dorsey to get that job if Dave, if Dable got hired. I think he said away. it directly. Uh, did he say it directly? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think so. I don't know if it was hinting or if it was direct, but I would imagine that that was put out there for a very specific reason. I wanted to ask you this. Uh, this is not in our questions, but you mentioning you know, the 2018 game you guys lost and losing in horrible fashion, even on that field. Do those things linger? Like, how does a loss like that hang in the air when you know that you had a Super Bowl caliber team? Because in 2018, you guys were the team of the season. It was your year. Pat won this. Pat won the MVP. 
It was the best thing about the NFL that year was watching you guys. You had to feel that in the moment. So when you fall short in a season like that, how do you stop it from lingering? You compartmentalize. You. This is me talking as just me. You get. I get over stuff relatively easily. Like I tried my best. I didn't have any regrets about my preparation or what I did on the field or whatever. Like I tried hard. I prepared. I studied. I played as hard as I could. It didn't work out for us. I don't think a healthy mindset. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm envious of you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not like I wasn't under insane stress all the time. We've talked about that a bunch, but just in the sense of like, I control what I can control. Again, I came from the worst situation in Cleveland where the best left tackle potentially of all time didn't get to go to the playoffs and it wasn't any doing of his own. He was the best player on the field every time he stepped on the field and it just didn't matter. And he had to figure out how to come to grips with that as an offensive lineman. You're one part of a five man group of an 11 man unit of a 53 man team. There's I've never talked to someone who had a better mindset and a better perspective about that stuff than him. Yeah. When you talk to Joe Thomas about that and what it was like to endure that every single year, I was just so I remember sitting in the cafeteria in Cleveland. I I wrote a story (laughs) about him and sitting here having that conversation with him and him just having like the most enviable and impressive perspective on what it was like to to have his career. I was like, man, (laughs) what a content man. I really appreciate it. So there are those types of players. I would put myself into that category. Um other guys, it's the thing that they think about the entire offseason and it's the thing that fuels them. And we see guys either create these slights or feel disrespected or this last thing, the thing happened last year. I need to fix it. So I'm going to work out every day with thinking of the AC championship game. Some guys are wired that way. I don't know if it's like an ultra competitive thing that you just always have to like win at that specific thing and then it drives you until you can accomplish it. I'm not wired in that specific way. So it's tough for me to say like that's what guys do, but it sure seems like that. I think it's the dumbest thing when guys like create slights or like I personally, I can't believe that Brady is still fueled by the fact that he was drafted in the sixth round. Like so many people bring that up all the time. It's like, okay, maybe after the third Super Bowl he got over it. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe then it was Deflate Gate or maybe it was this other thing and he found the motivation. And we've talked about before in terms of guys on second contracts or these other things that like once you get to that level, it's a whole different level of pressure because now you're expected to be that good. Like the reason we look so poorly again on the early start to the chiefs is because we expected 14 and three at a minimum. We expected Pat to be this Pat every single time expectations suck and they're really difficult. And what you do with those expectations and how you let it drive you is a huge thing for motivation for the long term. And so uh, that's how some guys are wired. So to answer your question, everyone handles it a little bit differently. I think, my guess is coaches and kind of front office people probably take that more top-down view. I think as players, you don't quite understand it in the moment. You look at a guy like Joe Tooney. He's in, what, year six, and he's played in, like, five Super Bowls or something. Yeah. Like, he's had an amazing season, and, like, all he knows is Super Bowls and playoffs. Like, Do you think that shit is real? To, to have been through that and to experience it and what it does for you? In terms of, like... Just not being phased by the moments. You know, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, Because we see all these things happen and it doesn't necessarily matter for guys. Like, that was our first Super Bowl and we were able to come back and win. Like, I saw it's more just how you're naturally wired. I think so. And this is kind of the clutch gene, right? Like, you would imagine that 
if you are able to handle those situations, it would have got weeded out a long time ago if you weren't. And so you'd have to imagine that these teams and these guys who make it to these points. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say the two weeks preparing for the 49ers wasn't the most nerve wracking two weeks of my professional life, like going up against that defensive line every single day. All you're doing is watching the same film and then destroying everyone they face. Like, yeah, it sucks and it gets to you and like you go on the field and you're really nervous and then the game starts and you kind of settle back in. But like Nick Allegretti, all he knows is going to Super Bowls. His first year, we won a Super Bowl. His second year, we went to a Super Bowl. and He got to play. And then this year, there's a very good chance the Chiefs are going to go to the Super Bowl. Like some guys get drafted into situations and it's like, oh, this is cool. This is pretty easy. And other guys <laughs> have the Joe Thomas situation where you just never really sniff it. Except you go to the playoffs your first year and then never go back. No, they didn't. I, I thought they meant oh. they were like 11 and 5 but gotcha. they didn't okay, go yeah, yeah that's right that's right yeah that's the best part of that story is that was his best season and they didn't make the playoffs with a record <laughs> that normally should have made the playoffs and then he never came close to it again so yeah it's it's i'm less likely to think that like oh now we've played enough playoff games to make us ready for the next one i know there's some element of being in the situation you know we go back to mike mccarthy saying the cowboys aren't ready for it it's like okay, so next year they're going to be ready for the playoffs because they've been in the situation. I know there's a human element of that and teams sometimes who aren't used to playing Monday Night Football or primetime or whatever, there, there probably is a mental component to it. Um, I guess I just never really felt like that existed for me personally, so I probably have some bias there. All right, one more Bills question real quick because I thought that Connor from Philadelphia phrased this in a way that we, we don't. I wasn't necessarily thinking about this soon after the game because it did feel like the Bills were so close. Hey, Robert, this is Connor from Philadelphia. Um, I'm calling as uh, what I'll call a transplanted Bills fan. Um, Just curious, after watching that game, I feel like a lot of teams after a tough playoff loss will sort of assume that everything would have gone differently with just a bounce of the ball in their direction. And in a lot of cases, it feels like they miss kind of key things that they need to fix with the team structure and strategy and everything. After watching that game, though, it really does feel like the Bills might be the one exception. So I'm curious if you guys see it the same way and they really should just kind of run everything back as is next year or if there's something structurally you think might need to improve. Thanks. So I never think that a team should just run it back the next year because you always need to think about like for the bills perfect example defensive regression will come you are the best defense in football this year you're not going to be next year even if you're a top five defense there are things you need to do to make sure you're a little bit better and create small edges on that side of the ball specifically when you look at this bills team we'll spend 90 seconds on this what do you think they need to do this offseason to make sure that all right this is the tiny little ways we're tweaking this and getting better maybe it's not obvious it's not obvious to me I think it starts and ends with both uh, lines, both I, offense and defense. I think that's fair. We've seen, I'm starting to think, and I mean, this is again, me and Joe talked about it a bunch, but Joe is much more, hey, get the stud receiver over the stud offensive lineman because the stud offensive lineman can only do so much. Um, <laughs> but I think now in terms of building a roster, quarterback's number one, your offensive line unit is number two, your pass catching unit is number three, and then defensive line is fourth most important. And with the Bills, the quarterback is awesome. The offensive line, you just keep strengthening that. You make that as good as possible, protect them as much as you can. Do you know what? I, and you know what another kind of point in that argument is? They're willing to put their best five out there. 
they don't care about continuity. And I think in a way that has strengthened them because they're just saying, we're going to see what the combinations are that are going to work. So if you're willing to live like that, making more changes and trying to add more talent all the time, you're more able to kind of incorporate those players than a team that says, we like our five, we're going to stick with our five. Right. And one of the criticisms is, oh, they don't run the ball enough or as efficiently. It's like, okay, we know that that doesn't matter. So just focus (laughs) on protecting Allen and then they need a pass rush. Like, I know they drafted guys, they got young guys. They don't have anyone up the middle that can pass rush. They really are stacked with edge guys and they didn't do much of anything yesterday. And I, I just think that is an area they need to develop, whether it's finding guys in free agency, draft some more, get a, another hand in there to develop those guys. Like I understand they're young, a couple rookies, they're going to get better. It's a second year guy as well. So I get that there's a progression there, but offensive line, defensive line, make them as good as possible. Allen has a couple receivers already. Like he'll be fine with decent enough guys if he has time. And if they can get to the other quarterback, they'll win 12 plus games every year. All right. Let's get to our next one here. Hey, Robert, Mitch. Crazy weekend. Um, but I, I mainly had a question about the Bengals. So I know that you've always had a trouble, you know, diverging what is Matt LaFleur and what is Aaron Rodgers. I'm not so sure it's that hard with the Bengals. It seems like it's mostly Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase and, you know, not that much the coaching. How much of the issue with the Bengals offense is really Zach Taylor and the scheme and how much of the issue is maybe the players or the OL. So anyway, thanks. Curious about your take on this. When you watch the Bengals, especially this weekend or just in general, where do you think their major failings are maybe outside of their offensive line talent and their ability to protect their quarterback? <laughs> no, you can't put that qualification well, on. Well, I mean, obviously the offensive line is just bad. <laughs> well, so what are you supposed to do as a coordinator? Like, get conservative? We talk about this. You don't trust your guys. You turn into what the uh, Chargers turned into earlier this year where you stop trusting your guys. You severely limit what your quarterback's going to do. He starts handing it off and now you're on third and eight all the time and how do you best protect better with outside of having better players yeah, <laughs> yeah. just uh, let's talk about the coordinator uh aside from this four guys that suck um but no it's 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 a bad offensive line like it's that simple they obviously played well enough to beat the team uh the titans they played well enough to beat the chiefs even though chris jones is in the backfield all day but yeah it just seems like burrow's making incredible plays he's clearly more than willing to get hit He's got a stud receiver. He's got a couple other good receivers, and it's working for them, and they're playing that brand of ball right now. They've rattled off some good runs occasionally. It's Again, you're not going to be super consistent with without a great offensive line. And so I don't think you can properly evaluate the scheme or what they're asking of Burrow until the offensive line gets fixed. And we've really only been talking about the offensive line for the last few weeks. I feel like it's been magnified uh, over these these playoffs. I think for the majority of the season, we kind of would have said like, oh, Cincinnati's playing well. The offense looks good. Burrow looks better. Since the reef injury, it's become much worse. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So this is more of a new development. I think for the majority of the season, we liked what we saw from that offense as a whole, both player-wise and schematics. All right. One more voicemail here. We don't have to spend a ton of time on this one, but I thought it was a really interesting question. Hey, Robert. Love the show. My name's Mitch. I'm a very, very depressed but young Bills fan at the moment, but also a University of Wisconsin grad. Go Badgers. So I'm familiar with the Packers struggles as well. But I wanted to ask you this for a while, but it seems more topical now. Um, which of these do you think is worse as a fan? 
Going through what I had to my whole childhood where I have no memory of the Bills making the goddamn playoffs until my sophomore year of college, or what's happened to the Packers of the last 10 years, now the Bills of the last couple, where you know you're so much better than most teams, but they always come up short in January. I think it's at least better to be relevant year over year, but I definitely understand how it renders the regular season pretty meaningless, so not sure about this. Thanks and take care. It's a great question. Because I, even if you're a Packer fan, if you're a Packer fan right now and you've watched Aaron Rodgers every single year, you've watched him be one of, I don't know, the five to seven greatest quarterbacks of all time, and you've won one goddamn Super Bowl, I can understand how that's frustrating. You could also live the life that I lead, where I've never gotten to watch a good quarterback in 34 years of being on this planet. So I I understand both sides of it. I think I'd still rather have the good team every single year. But it does make it a little bit sweeter if you've never had the good team, then you finally break through. But I guess you could say the same thing about the Packers. What do you think about this? I was going to say this is much more up your alley as a lifelong suffering fan than mine. I think you'd rather have the good team and the good quarterback and just look back after and be like, oh, that was a great run. I wish we did a little more. The staunching of all hope and just the beatdown that fan bases get when they just have no hope year after you were, year. You are familiar with that. That I am. Uh, <laughs> and luckily, I only had to go through it for so long. I didn't have to live through it and be a fan for 30 plus years. That just sucks. And we hear these voicemails. There's been a couple already of people that are just utterly defeated by their fan, their team and their fans. And they're so excited. And it's just like, oh man, this happened again. And for the most part, the most depression is from the fan bases that are just we don't have hope there's nothing to look for in the future we've been bad for 10 years i just want some glimmer of hope and so i I would take the good quarterback and just looking back being like oh man we only won one super bowl in 15 years that's a much better outcome than being miserable for 30 and i feel like those two fan bases that we've gotten a lot of familiarity with over the last season the last couple weeks even what the bills now feel like having josh allen and what the Bengals now feel like having joe burrow yeah well that's all i want in the world (laughs) it's all i want so i have faith in what justin fields can become right but that feeling and just knowing we could be relevant every single year because this guy's in the building is amazing so so here's the other thing the packers for the past 15 i mean really for the past 35 years but let's just say the rogers era my lifetime 15 years yeah (laughs) for the past 15 years they've said okay we've got a great quarterback this is, for the most part, been an awesome season. 75% of the time, you're going to be happy after a regular season game. You're going to get excited for playoff games. You're going to lose half of your playoff games. It's going to end poorly because you have these expectations. You're really excited. You want to see your team in the Super Bowl. It's going to sting a little bit more than going 5-12 and 12 and being really miserable throughout the course of the year. And then after a month or two, you're going to get over it. You're going to look to free agency and be, oh, wait, we just need this one receiver. We need this. Now, the Packers, of course, aren't the best example to look forward to free agency for. <laughs> but everyone else, you look forward to free agency. Things start to happen. You look forward to the draft. Oh, we drafted that one lineman that we need. This is great. The season starts. You win another 75% of your games. You go to the playoffs. You win one game. You lose one. You're, you're bummed. It lasts a month or two. And the cycle starts over and over. There's always hope. There's always the next year. It's always exciting. For the most part, throughout the course of the season, you're always excited and you're in a good mood. The flip side, as you well know, is going 4-12 and 12 every year. And the season ends and it's like, oh, this sucks. And we have so many holes to fill. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And we don't have a quarterback. And then every eight years, you find a quarterback that you – <laughs> you trick yourself into thinking could be the guy and of course he comes nowhere near it and you're just constantly miserable the season sucks your team constantly sucks there's no hope in the offseason 
you put way too much stock into the draft and then it becomes this perpetual cycle of misery so which of those two would you prefer <laughs> i'm gonna take the good quarterback yeah you've made a good argument and made me sad all at once all right sticking with the packers one last question here peter saunders said big fan of the show been reading and listening since your grant one days i appreciate that peter said depressed packer fan from the uk trying to unpack uh-huh, saturday night's game i have a question for mitch on the way the packers approach the offensive line we didn't talk about this at all last night and i really want to dig into it we saw Billy Turner give up sacks and pressures playing left tackle in the NFC Championship game last year. And the Packers again chose to play him at left tackle against the Niners, leaving Dennis Kelly at right tackle. Lafleur said his preference is to go with the best five guys. But whilst I try to process losing again in the playoffs, I can't help but wonder whether they should have gone with Yash Nyman, who played well when called upon this year at left tackle, and left Turner at right tackle to deal with Nick Bosa. Kelly's obviously more experienced than Nyman, but my question for Mitch is whether in his experience, he'd rather go with the best five guys, even if some are playing out of position, or whether the complications of playing out of position just aren't worth that risk, and you're better off going with arguably lesser players in their preferred spots. This is a great question, because when I turned on that game on Saturday, or Sunday morning, and I saw that Bakhtari was not in there, I was like, what happened? What is happening here? Be it Billy Turner and Dennis Kelly again? And remember a few weeks ago, when we were like, man, we should probably be worried about the, the Packers offensive line in a big moment, huh? And it came up in a big moment. So how do you feel about the way they approached that in that moment, in that game? So when you talk about best five, they still have to perform well. You can, we're using Bill Turner as an example. He's not like the example we're not picking on him. But if you're saying he's, you know, an 80% player at his best, he's moving to left tackle and now he's not going to be quite as good and he's a 63% player. We've got this other guy who's all the time a 70% player, but he's the left tackle. Well, both of those guys, the left tackle, the 70% player is better. So on the whole, your 80% player is in there, but at the position he's playing, he's now worse than the backup. So that's not your best five. Like that's, that's a poor argument for best five. It's the best five at each spot. And there's a little bit of shifting going on. We just talked about this with the Bills and them trying to find their best five and the guys who fit the spots the best. But essentially, you had two right tackles or right side guys in Kelly and in Billy Turner, and you had a guy at left tackle. Both those guys are better at right tackle than he is at left tackle. But once you move one of them, now that guy probably becomes just as good, if not worse, at left tackle. So to me, that's not getting your best five guys on the field because he's no longer one of your best five at that position. And so I think that's the critical thing. We've talked about this a bunch. It's one of the things in the offensive line community. Like you can't just switch guys left and right. You can make a right guard a right tackle, a right tackle a right guard, much easier than you can make a right guard a left tackle. Well, that's the worst case scenario, but right tackle, left tackle, or right guard, a left guard. And switching sides is completely different and if any of you have ever had an injury to your dominant hand and you've had to use your other hand now imagine doing that against nick bosa (laughs) so that's what you're asking the guy to do if you're asking him to switch positions and also that left side hadn't played together at all so and there was a sack in that game the ebicom sack is a perfect example where they're running a game and there's just absolutely no chemistry or understanding of where they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to pass it off i mean think about that bakhtiari practiced this week so they didn't even practice together and now you're playing a left side you've never played in a game against one of the best defensive fronts in the NFL. And it looked like it. So my thing would probably be, it's not necessarily this This sparks something in my head that I probably should have thought about earlier. So going into the week, they probably said, okay, Bakhtiari's left tackle, Kelly's at right tackle, or maybe Billy Turner took all the reps at right tackle. We don't know. Kelly is the swing tackle. So those three guys are your three tackles. Bakhtiari at left tackle. Turner or Kelly at right tackle and the other of them is your swing tackle. So 
the four string now tackle isn't getting any reps at all throughout the week at tackle. So maybe in the moment they're just like, man, Bakhtiari can't play. This other guy, he hasn't practiced all week. I'd rather go with the guy who's at least practiced and gotten some reps and might not be quite as good, but he's had the week of practice. That's a really good point. And yeah. that probably is the answer if we actually boil it down and think about the progression and how guys practice. Um, that's my best guess on what ended up happening. I think if they went into the week and they knew that Bakhtiari was more likely not going to play, they probably would have left the dude at left tackle um, and then just figured out whichever guy they preferred at right tackle. But because he practiced, that probably threw things off. And then you go into a Sunday and now you're asking a young guy who hasn't played playoff ball to go be a, a starter against the 49ers defensive ends when he hasn't practiced in that spot all week. All right, that's all we got. We should do this every week. Maybe I'll just fly down every single Monday and come to Kansas City. Maybe, uh, the, yeah, the, the athletics got that money. Yeah, now, so they can they'll put the that bill. Just, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's a real casual thing. Really enjoyed it. Always good to see you, buddy. As always with you guys. Thank you so much for the questions. Uh, we This show has been so fun to do all year, in large part because you guys are so engaged and so thoughtful in the questions that you ask. So really appreciate that. Tomorrow, be on the lookout for Dane and Lance doing the second episode of their draft show. Cannot wait for that to be with you guys every single Wednesday through draft season. Please go check that out. In the meantime, please rate and review the show on your podcast platform of choice. Please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. Highly encourage you guys to do that at this stage of the season. You can read Nate Taylor on last night's game. You can read Jordan Rodriguez's wonderful piece on the Rams game and just everything they had to kind of work through to win that game. Now as they move on to the NFC Championship, I'm sure we'll have some fantastic previews of the conference championship games if you don't have enough of a subscription it is time to get one as always guys appreciate the time we'll talk to you later this was the athletic football show hey football fans this is diana rossini from the athletic get the top stories in pro football snapped directly to your inbox with our latest nfl newsletter scoop city Jacob Robinson and I will bring you the daily scoop of top NFL articles, posts, and podcasts every Monday to Friday. Sign up for free now at theathletic.com backslash scoop.